You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Thud. Dead. Thud. Dead. Thud. Dead. 62 thud deads. I call them that because the sound and the thought of death came to me each time at the same instant. There was plenty of chance to watch them as they came down. The height was 80 feet. The first 10 thud deads shocked me. I looked up, saw that there were scores of girls at the windows. The flames from the floor below were beating in their faces. Somehow, I knew that they too must come down. I even watched one girl falling, waving her arms, trying to keep her body upright until the very instant she struck the sidewalk. She was trying to balance herself. Then came the thud, then a silent, unmoving pile of clothing and twisted, broken limbs. These are the words from an eyewitness account of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire that happened on Saturday, March 25th, 1911, in the Ash Building in New York City. In all, 146 women and girls died in the fire. Some were burned to death, some died from asphyxiation from smoke inhalation, and some died trying to escape the flames and smoke by jumping from the ninth floor of the building and dying upon impact. This episode is part of a series about fashion. So what was the fashion behind the labor conditions that allowed one of the most horrendous industrial catastrophes in American history? The shirtwaist, a style of shirt that took Gilded Age and Progressive Era fashion by storm. I'm Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek. And I'm Avril Earls. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. <laughs> The shirtwaist was a mainstay of the female wardrobe from the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. So what exactly is a shirtwaist? Simply put, it was a woman's blouse. It was usually made out of cotton, but could also commonly be made out of linen or even silk. A typical shirtwaist was unstructured, meaning it had no boning or inner lining to give the shirt its shape. Shirtwaists were tucked, pleated, or cut smaller at the waist because they were designed to be worn tucked into a skirt. The shirtwaist could be worn with or without a jacket. They could be quite plain, or they could be elaborately decorated with lace, embroidery, and pleats. The style of the shirtwaist changed over the years, depending on fashion. 
Changes to the necklines, collars, cuffs, and rise and fall of the waistline denote different periods of the style. Typically, a well-dressed man of business wore a white shirt with a turned-down collar and cuffs under his coat and or vest. Initially, the shirt waist evolved from the simple tailored men's shirt. As women became more independent and began working outside of the home, their style of dress changed to something more functional. Over time, shirtwaists evolved from the simple tailored version of a man's shirt to a beautiful feminine garment embellished with lace and trimmings. But why the weird name of shirtwaist? Well, the definition of waist to a 19th century person referred to the bodice of a woman's dress. So today we think of waist only being that part of the body between the hips and the ribs. But in the 19th and early 20th century, it also referred to a specific area of a woman's dress. So waist was another term for the bodice of a woman's dress. And I guess we should define bodice, too. Um, so the bodice of a dress is the middle part, the tube part that covered your torso. That's the scientific lingo, by yeah. the way. The tube the part. The tube part? <laughs> scientific, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, obviously. Or, like, high fashion, whatever. Um, so that's the part of the a woman's dress that excludes the sleeves that is above the waist. So the term shirt waist was a combination of the shirt and the waist, the waist part being in, in terms of the bodice of a dress and the shirt like a man's tailored shirt. Therefore, a shirt waist is a term only used to describe the female version of a male dress shirt. The functional shirtwaist was valued for its ready-to-wear, workplace-friendly, simple design, although women from all social classes wore the iconic shirt. Mostly working-class women wore these shirts. They were also much easier to launder because there was no internal boning or line structure. They could be washed and ironed as easily as a man's shirt. Although introduced as early as the 1860s, shirtwaists became more popular as the 19th century progressed. Modes of production changed after the 1860s, too. Ready-made clothing became more and more accessible. At first, the ready-made clothing industry focused mostly on men's clothes because the designs were simpler and easier to produce. However, by the 1870s, the ready-made clothing industry extended into the more complicated clothing for women, replacing many dressmakers with mass-produced fashions. Increased mechanization combined with advances in sizing and fitting made ready-made clothing easier to make and consume. But mass-produced ready-made clothing also allowed working-class women to partake in fancier fashions that they may not have been able to afford in earlier periods. By the 1890s, the ready-made clothing industry produced levels or grades of quality. This allowed women of all incomes the chance to wear fashionable items. So this is like wearing something that's trendy now. You can find the same type of style at both Nordstrom's and Forever 21, but one is presumably going to be higher quality than the other. I usually doubt it. Yeah. <clears throat> I've yeah. got stuff from Forever 21 that are that are kicking long term whereas yeah. yeah. Nordstrom face. Anyway. You know what I mean. Yes. So the late 19th century was such a time of changing tastes and ideas. Many women and men began rejecting the rigidity of the Victorian era in thoughts, actions, and dress. 
Women were working outside of the home in larger numbers, getting college educations and advanced degrees in larger numbers, and partaking in physical activities in larger numbers. In 1876, the modern bicycle was exhibited at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition and immediately captured the attention of the American public. By 1885, 50,000 American men, women, and children were cycling, and by 1896, that number had jumped to over 10 million. Initially, women cycled in their bustles and corsets, but fashions changed to accommodate bicycle riders. By far, the most common approach to a woman's cycling dress were skirts cut just a few inches short in the style of a walking skirt. Uh, These skirts were generally made from sturdy tweed fabrics and paired perfectly with a shirt waist. Dark colors hid the dust and the grime that a cyclist would inevitably pick up on her clothing as she cycled. Interestingly, clothing or fashion is also why we have men's bikes and women's bikes today. Bicycle manufacturers obviously had a stake in getting women on bikes, so they made a lot of adjustments in their design in order to make that happen. So the dropped or open step-through frames that we associate with a quote-unquote woman's bike were actually designed to accommodate a woman's full skirt. Whereas pants would have been so much easier. I know. and But it's so funny because I remember like when my mom told me when I started riding a bike, like, yeah. well, that's a man's bike and that's a woman's bike. And I was like, well, why? Because that's also about the time I realized that like you can't kick dudes in the balls. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense because right. that bar is right there by their ding-dongs. And so, <laughs> so shouldn't it be the opposite way? Shouldn't it the shouldn't guys be, be low? And, and I remember mm. that like really blowing my mind. And now I'm like, oh. Because of the patriarchy. Yes. That's why. Yeah. Another cultural phenomenon was going on during the late 19th century was something called the aesthetic dress or rational dress movement. It began in England in the 1850s, but there were proponents in America, too. For instance, Amelia Bloomer, who I also talk about in a few weeks in my episode on pants, pants. was a proponent of less restrictive clothing. She was a women's rights act advocate and pushed for women to wear pantaloons as they were healthier and less restrictive. Pantaloons, or bloomers as they came to be called, became associated with the women's rights movement in the mid-19th century. Although the bloomers didn't really catch on, by the 1880s more and more people were speaking out about the ridiculousness of modern fashion. The aesthetic dress movement influenced the trends toward healthier and non-restrictive clothing for women. Although most women wore corsets well into the 1920s, corset design in the late 19th century became less restrictive, bustles, if worn at all, were much smaller, and hoops became completely out of fashion. All of this, the education, the job, the bicycle, the female in public, became associated with the new woman. She was smart, she was independent, and she was stylishly dressed. The fashion icon of the day was known as the Gibson Girl. First drawn by illustrator Charles Dana Gibson beginning in 1890, the Gibson Girl combined older and more modern elements of American fashion. She was tall and slender, but still retained the corseted waist and ample hips and bosom of the Victorian era. Her hair was always piled on top of her head in the fashionable bouffant style. The Gibson girl was often depicted in action, either riding a bike, playing tennis, leisurely enjoying the outdoors, or playing an instrument. 
She was the modern new woman, perfectly capable in her interests and talents. The Gibson girl was often depicted wearing a shirtwaist and a long, dark-colored skirt. The shirtwaist came to represent more than a fashion trend. It was, in a way, an emblem of the new woman and a symbol of female independence in a rapidly changing time. By the 1890s, women could purchase most of the clothing they needed, including the fashionable shirtwaists. They were worn with a dark skirt and were the staple of a working woman's wardrobe. They were sold across the country and through mail-order catalogs like Sears and Roebuck. During the early 20th century, women became a significant presence in the American labor force, making up almost 22% of all wage earners by 1930. Many working-class and immigrant women worked in factory positions, while middle-class women, including some middle-class Black, Hispanic, and Asian women with a high school or advanced education, worked in professional fields like teaching, nursing, and social work. The figure of the working woman wearing the fashionable shirtwaist became an iconic image for the women's rights movement and the changing nature of work in general. The production of shirtwaists was a super competitive industry at the turn of the 20th century. A majority of shirtwaists were mass-produced in Philadelphia and New York, but there were major factories and sweatshops in other industrialized cities, too, particularly those with large immigrant populations like Chicago. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, located in the top floors of the Ash Building in Greenwich Village, was one of many shirtwaist factories operating in Manhattan. Factories like the Triangle were core to New York's status as an industrial center and provided jobs to the thousands of immigrants that arrived in the country on a daily basis. Many garments, not just shirtwaists, were produced in what was called the sweating system. Owners subcontracted a lot of the work to individuals who then hired people under them to do the actual work, and then they got the profit. Subcontractors could pay the workers whatever rates they wanted, which were often extremely low. Labor advocate Florence Kelly oversaw labor conditions in Chicago, Illinois. She described the three types of shops that operated in Chicago and most large cities. The first were known among the employees as the inside shops, or those conducted on the factory system by the manufacturers themselves. Then there were the outside shops, or those conducted by the contractors who hired subcontractors. And finally, the home shops where family groups did outwork for the subcontractors in their homes. Uh, she described how the factories that once made a garment from start to finish were dividing the labor to make production faster and driving production speed to dangerous levels. Kelly described one of these sweating situations. Quote, a shop was found in which 12 persons lived in six rooms of which two were used as a shop. Knee pants in all stages of completion filled the shop, the bedrooms and kitchen. Nine men were employed at machines in a room 12 by 14, and there were knee pants being manufactured by the thousand gross. This is in the rear of a swarming tenement in a wretched street. One young Russian Jewish immigrant wrote about the first job she got upon arriving in a New York City textile factory in 1892. Quote, from this hour, a hard life began for me. He, the boss, refused to employ me except by the week. He paid me $3, and for this he hurried me from early until late. He gave me only two coats at a time to do. When I took them over, and as he handed me the new work, he would say quickly and sharply, Hurry! I hurried, but he was never satisfied. By looks and manner, he made me feel that I was not doing enough. 
late at night when the people would stand up and begin to fold their work away, and I too would rise feeling stiff in every limb and thinking with dread of our cold, empty little room and the uncooked rice, he would come over with still another coat. I need it the first thing in the morning, he would give as an excuse. I understood that he was taking advantage of me because I was a child. Some garment workers were paid by a system known as piecework, meaning that they were paid by the piece that they sewed. This meant that bosses paid workers less when there was less work to do. It was a way for owners and bosses to transfer the risk of a seasonal industry, because fashion is seasonal, to the workers. Wages could drop by half during slow periods. Pauline Newman was the first female general organizer of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, the ILGWU, and she worked for the union for six decades. She began working in a hairbrush factory at the age of 10. When she was 12, a relative got her a job working at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1903. Girls like Newman spent 12 to 14 hours a day in shops and factories like the Triangle, making about 3 to $6 a week. The average salary in America was roughly $500 a year. A woman making 3 to $6 a week made approximately 100 to $300 a year. The noise of sewing machines was deafening, the pace of work was backbreaking, and sexual advances by male co-workers and foremen were a common occurrence. Newman wrote a series of journals and poems, some of which were published in New York Yiddish-language newspapers. She described the factories as such. Most of the so-called factories were located in old wooden walk-ups with rickety stairs, splintered and sagging floors. The few windows were never washed, and their broken panes were mended with cardboard. In the winter, a stove stood in the middle of the floor, a concession to the need for heat, but its warmth rarely reached the workers located near the windows. During the summer months, the constant burning of gas jets added their unwelcome heat and smell to an atmosphere already intolerably humid and oppressive. There was no drinking water available. Dirt, smells, and vermin were as much a part of the surroundings as were the machines and the workers. When Newman started working at the Triangle, she was assigned to a corner of the shop dubbed the Kindergarten, where workers as young as eight or nine trimmed threads from finished garments. By the early 20th century, New York had laws prohibiting children from working at night, but there was little enforcement. Newman remembered the rare occasion when an inspector would show up. Someone would tip off the employees, and the children climb, would climb into the boxes of finished shirts, and they'd just pile more shirts on top of them until the inspector left. And let's remember, some families wanted their children working. They provided much-needed income to help the family simply survive. Another garment worker, Clara Limlick, began working in textile manufacturing as a young girl only two weeks after arriving in New York City. Her family fled the Ukraine in 1903 following the Kishinev pogrom, where 49 Jewish people were killed, large numbers of Jewish women were raped, and 1,500 Jewish homes were destroyed. Upon arrival in New York City, Limelick began working at the Gotham Shirtwaist Factory, where women worked 11 hours a day, six days a week, for starting wages of $3 a week. Limelick wrote that these conditions reduced workers to, quote, the status of machines. We worked from sunrise to set, seven days a week. Limelick joined the board of a chapter of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, 
Uh, she was integral in growing her local chapter because she suggested that women organizers should recruit women workers and found organizers to recruit workers um, in their native language. So Yiddish, English and Italian. Along with Newman, Limlick became an ardent socialist and participated in numerous strikes. In 1909, during a strike at the Leeserson shirtwaist maker, she was arrested 17 times and had six of her ribs broken by company guards and city police. Yet, she kept on marching the picket line. It's important to note that labor organizers like Limlick and Newman was part of a movement called industrial feminism. It was greatly influenced by socialism, but was not a rigid form of political thought. Union organizers most notably the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, shied away from broad reforms to more narrow, limited goals, like higher wages, as opposed to creating a cooperative commonwealth that the earlier, more utopian-minded labor organization, the Knights of Labor, had entailed. After bloodbaths like the Homestead Strike in Pennsylvania in 1892 and the Pullman Strike of 1894, Organizations like the AFL felt that direct confrontations with large corporations were just plain suicidal. The labor organizing done by women like Newman and Limlick, however, was more than just the bread and butter demands of the AFL. Industrial feminism developed demands that included better wages and working conditions, but also wanted unions to offer educational and cultural opportunities and even health care. On November 22nd, 1909, only two months after having her ribs broken on a previous picket line, Limlick stood in front of thousands of shirtwaist workers at the Cooper Union in New York City. The crowd had gathered to listen to a group of mostly male union officials. No working women were scheduled to speak, and after a few of the men had spoken, Limlick took over the podium and moved for a general strike. Speaking in Yiddish, she boomed. I am a working girl, one of those who are on strike against intolerable conditions. I am tired of listening to speakers who talk in general terms. What we are here for is to decide whether we shall strike or shall not strike. I offer a resolution that a general strike be declared now. After rounds of applause, Limlick and the thousands in attendance took a Yiddish oath to strike the following day, pledging... If I turn traitor to the cause I now pledge, may this hand wither from the arm I now raise. That's, that's man, that's badass. <laughs> the next day, New York City awoke to a strike of roughly 20,000 garment workers, mostly teenagers and women. The movement that culminated in the uprising of the 20,000 had began with strikes against the Leeserson Company, the Rosen Brothers, and the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. Now it had spread to the entire city. It was the largest strike ever in female-dominated industries. The strike, dubbed the Uprising of 20,000, is often talked about as a spontaneous strike, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's like the myth of Rosa Parks being a little old lady that was just too tired to give up her seat. Uh, no. Parks was a labor organizer and a civil rights organizer, and she was trained and ready to do what needed to be done to push the movement forward. The uprising of 20,000 was very much in the same vein. Limlick, Newman, and countless other organizers had been working towards a strike of that magnitude for three years, and working women had been listening, learning, and organizing. The uprising of 20,000 strike lasted for over two months. 
The strike was organized and held by the ILGWU and workers, but they had support from the Women's Trade Union League, WTUL. Almost immediately after the strike started, police and hired thugs began violently beating and hauling off striking women. They called them streetwalkers and tried to tie their activism to sexual misconduct and delinquency. The WTUL helped the striking workers with funds and access to the press. Anne Morgan, daughter of J.P. Morgan, with the help of other wealthy New York women, formed a WTUL committee to help the strikers avoid abuse from the police and hired thugs. They were named the Mink Brigade, which is a terrible... What the... Mink because they wore their they wore minks. minks. Yeah, because they were like they I mean JP Morgan's daughter. I know, like, this I know, I know. Is rich. She, she's like <laughs> head to toe in minks. But like, really? <laughs> it's like the Ghostbusters lady. And <laughs> it comes to like <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> so they were named the Mink Brigade. But they went out and walked the picket line with the young immigrant strikers because the police were less likely to beat up New York City's most respectable women. When strikers were arrested, committee members often paid their fines, and the committee even brought legal action against the police. Solidarity! And, <laughs> and it's really hard to overstate. Well, and you say solidarity, but then later, actually, Ann Morgan bows out because she feels that they're being too socialist. So. Damn her! You know, like... And it comes, it goes. Grow a pair of ovaries. <laughs> but it's really hard to overstate how massive this strike was. 20,000 people. Just think back to the first women's marches in January 2018 and how the streets were filled with protesters in city after city. That's what the uprising of 20,000 was like. And it also was mostly women and, and girls and teenagers. And remember, this is before women had the right to vote. Many strikers didn't even speak English. The strike crippled the shirtwaist industry for two whole months. Strikers won some concessions from several shirtwaist factories for better wages and shorter hours. Overall, however, the success of the strike was a mixed bag. Some shirtwaist workers were able to gain union recognition in their factories. Larger and more powerful companies, like the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, refused to recognize unions in their factories. The Triangle Waste Company was located at 23 Washington Place in Greenwich Village at the northern corner of Washington Square East. The factory, like many others, paid low wages for long hours in dangerous conditions. The owners of the Triangle, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, were known as the Shirtwaist Kings and had made millions of dollars off the fashion trend. Surprisingly, however... The Triangle Factory was in many ways a model factory, all things considered. The Ash Building was actually one of the newer skyscrapers in the city. It was nicer than many dingy backroom sweating factories. The new, larger factories offered a better, brightly lit environment where factory owners could crowd hundreds of mostly women onto the shop floor. Alternatively, it gave workers the opportunity to socialize. Young women like Newman and Limlick made lifelong friends working on shop floors just like the Triangle. The loft space allowed for large banks of electric sewing machines and enabled all aspects of the business, from the initial cuts to distribution, to be conducted under one roof. What this meant, however, 
was demand of production was higher. Mechanization was higher in new shops like this. And so output and production speed was drastically increased. So basically you had to work just as hard or harder because now you had a faster sewing machine and had the potential of making more finished pieces in a day. The factory was terribly overcrowded and the layers of loose threads and fabric clippings accumulated under the tables and clung to women's clothing and hair. Fire broke out in the Triangle Shirtwaist Company near closing time on Saturday, March 25, 1911, in the top floors of the Ash Building. The Triangle Shirtwaist Company took up the top three floors of the building, so the 8th, 9th, and 10th. The fire started on the 8th floor at about 4.40 in the afternoon. Investigators later determined that the fire was started by a discarded cigarette. The shop was filled with paper patterns, fabric, and the scraps and loose threads discarded on the floor, and all of that quickly caught fire. Workers inside panicked and ran for the exits all at once. The building had an internal switchboard operator who called up to the 10th floor to alert the office workers and owners of the fire. Many of the 10th floor employees, including one of the owners, Max Blank, and two of his daughters, managed to make it onto the roof. The adjacent building was part of NYU, and a law professor and his students heard the screams and saw the fire and the people desperately making it onto the roof. The NYU building was a little higher than the Ash building. Students grabbed some ladders and ran to their building's roof, then lowered the ladders down to the people below. Everyone that made it to the roof managed to escape. Many people still inside were not as lucky. No one alerted the ninth floor of the fire that had started on the eighth floor. The ninth floor was packed. Every available space on the shop floor was taken up by a sewing machine. There were about 300 machines on the floor. Once the fire reached their floor, workers panicked and rushed the exits, just as they had done on the eighth. About 100 people escaped on the elevator. The elevator made about 15 trips up and down. When the elevator car went down, people would jump into the shaft to try to make it out. The fire spread fast. It burned through three floors in 18 minutes. The fire department was on the scene quickly. The fire alarm was raised at approximately 4.45 p.m. and the fire department arrived just minutes later. But by this point, women were standing on the window ledges or were seen pressing against the windows on the ninth floor. The firefighters got out their ladders, but they only reached as high as the sixth floor, 30 feet below the ninth floor. Thousands of people had gathered on the street below. One of those people was Frances Perkins, who would later become FDR's Secretary of Labor and one of the masterminds behind the New Deal. Years later, she remembered that awful day. I remember that the accident happened on a Saturday. I happened to have been visiting a friend on the other side of the park, and we heard the engines, and we heard the screams, and rushed out and rushed over where we could see what the trouble was. We could see this building from Washington Square, and the people had just begun to jump when we got there. They had been holding until that time, standing on the windowsills, being crowded by others behind them, the fire pressing closer and closer, the smoke closer and closer. 
Finally, the men were trying to get out this thing that the firemen carry with them, a net, to catch people if they do jump. They were trying to get that out, and they couldn't wait any longer. They began to jump. The window was too crowded, and they would jump, and they hit the sidewalk. The net broke. They fell a terrible distance. The weight of the bodies was so great at the speed at which they were traveling that they broke through the net. Every one of them was killed. Everybody who jumped was killed. It was a horrifying spectacle. We had our dose of it that night and felt as though we had been part of it all. The next day, people, as they heard about it in all parts of the city, they began to mull around and gather and talk. More than 90 people jumped to their deaths from the Ash Building. One woman, Rose Oringer, survived the jump but died in the hospital later that night from internal bleeding. Later, survivors told of how they tried to open the ninth floor doors into the Washington Place stairs. They believed, and many still do, that the doors were deliberately locked. The owners had frequently locked the exit doors in order to prohibit theft. Additionally, the ninth floor fire escape in the Ash Building was blocked a few stories down, and as people climbed out onto it, it bent and broke under their weight. The New York Times reported that the city coroner was overwhelmed and sobbed like a child among the bodies being laid out. A firefighter said that he saw bodies that had been melted together. During the search and cleanup phase, women and girls' charred bodies were pulled out of the ninth floor windows and lowered to the ground on a rope. Many of the bodies were charred beyond recognition. One mother was only able to identify her daughter because of the stitching on her stocking. Even if the doors hadn't been locked, there still weren't adequate fire safety measures inside the building. And remember, the Ash Building was a fairly new building. The stairways were two and a half feet wide. The doors opened in, not out. There was no sprinkler system throughout the building, although sprinkler systems existed at the time. The fire chief, Edward Croker, had been pleading for years previous for improved fire safety, but... Remember, lawmakers are the ones that set regulations and appropriate funds for fire departments and everything else. And there was no political will to meddle with private business. Fire drills existed at the time, but many places wouldn't do it because it would disrupt the workday. Dollars would be lost. Basically, the law didn't require any of the fire safety measures that can save lives in an emergency like this. Despite the push of many progressive-era reformers, government had not gotten involved in protecting worker safety at this time. There was a prevailing notion that regulations stifled business, that it was an owner's right to do and run his company how he saw fit. Laissez-faire capitalism trumped workers' freedom to work in safe environments for a livable income. Rose Schneiderman, a major leader in the Women's Trade Union League, spoke at a mass memorial service held for the victims of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and summed up the feelings of many in the labor movement. I would be a traitor to these poor burned bodies if I came here to talk good fellowship. We have tried you good people of the public, and we have found you wanting. The old Inquisition had its rack and its thumbscrews, and its instruments of torture with iron teeth. We know what these things are today. The iron teeth are our necessities. The thumbscrews are the high-powered and swift machinery close to which we must work. 
and the rack is here in the fire trap structures that will destroy us the minute they catch on fire. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in the city. Every week I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Every year thousands of us are maimed. The life of men and women is so cheap and property is so sacred. There are so many of us for one job, it matters little if 146 of us are burned to death. We have tried you, citizens. We are trying you now. And you have a couple of dollars for the soaring mothers, brothers, and sisters by way of a charity gift? But every time the workers come out in the only way they know to protest against conditions which are unbearable, the strong hand of the law is allowed to press down heavily upon us. Public officials have only words of warning to us, warning that we must be intensely peaceable. And they have the workhouse just back of all their warnings. The strong hand of the law beats us back when we rise into the conditions that make life unbearable. I can't talk fellowship to you who are gathered here. Too much blood has been spilled. I know from my experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. The only way they can save themselves is by a strong working class movement. Damn! (laughs) I know. She's like, she's like, yeah, your thoughts and prayers ain't shit, people. Mm -hmm. It's time for action. Don't tell us how to protest, quote unquote, correctly. We're out here dying and we're trying to organize. Sounds like Colin Eager. Well... Oh, well, it just I mean, it just strikes me so much because, you know, you hear that today. You heard that in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. You hear it with protests. Oh, well, I, I believe in their cause, but they're not protesting. Right. Right. They're they're not doing it peacefully enough or whatever, you know. So. Grr. so there was such an outrage over these senseless deaths that there was an effort to bring those responsible to justice. The reports that the doors of the factory were locked at the time of the fire prompted the district attorney's office to seek an indictment against the owners, Harris and Blank. On April 11th, a grand jury indicted them on seven counts, and then the case went to trial in December. Worker after worker testified that the only door workers were allowed to leave through at quitting time was through an opening on the Green Street side of the building. They testified that all purses and bags were inspected as they left. Worker after worker testified that they couldn't open the doors to the Washington Place exit because the Green Street stairs were engulfed in flames. More testimony supported this fact, yet the jury acquitted Blank and Harris of any wrongdoing. The jury let them off because it couldn't be proved without any doubt that the owners actually knew the doors were locked at the time. The defense attorney was able to cast enough doubt on that fact to be found not guilty. Later, 23 individual civil suits were brought against the owners of the Ash Building. On March 11, 1914, three years after the fire, Harris and Blank settled their own civil suits. They paid only $75 per life lost. So stupid. Only the day before the tragic and preventable catastrophe at Triangle, the New York State Court of Appeals had struck down a new workman's compensation law as unconstitutional, as it interfered with the due process rights of employers to have their liability adjudicated in court. If you want a deeper dive into how the law worked in favor of employers during this period, have a listen to our episode on the 14th Amendment. 
After the Triangle Fire, however, there was enough public support that the state constitution was amended and a workers' compensation law subsequently enacted in 1913. Booyah! After the Triangle Fire disaster, the state of New York created a factory investigating commission to study safety, sanitation, wages, hours, and child labor in places like sweatshops, canneries, and bakeries. Francis Perkins and Polly Newman were hired as investigators for the committee. Over the years following the fire, New York adopted 36 of the commission's recommendations into law. Several of the commission members went on to ascend to the national stage, where they spearheaded many national reforms. Commission member Robert Wagner went on to become a U.S. senator and, while in office, saw through the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, granting uh, workers everywhere the right to organize. It's also known as the Wagner Act. Uh, and that was passed during the Great Depression. Just uh, FYI, it was repealed by the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. Here are some of the laws recommended by the commission and enacted in New York after the Triangle Fire. Fire drills. Great. Automatic sprinklers. No brainer. Fire prevention, like the removal of trash and waste. Duh. Yup. Uh, Fire alarm signal systems. Thank you, electricity. (laughs) Mandatory fire escapes and exits. Mm -hmm. Limitation of number of occupants in a building. Ventilation, both general and special. Washing facilities, dressing rooms, and water closets, a.k.a. the toilet. The toilet, but not the toilet. The toilet. Bowl. Bowl. Vincent is... um... French? My son, seven, who was seven, is obsessed right now with the idea of chamber pots Ooh. because he asked, like, well, how do people poop back in the old day? And I explained chamber pots to him and he can't get it out of his head. He's, like, fascinated that people used to poop in a bowl under their bed. Does he want one? <laughs> he better not because I ain't cleaning well, it. Well, he's got to do his own <laughs> chamber pot. He can, yeah, he can do a historical reenactment. The maid's on vacation. <laughs> oh, my God. But conditions were still bad. Harrison Blank continued running the shirtwaist company. In August 1913, Max Blank was charged with locking one of the doors of his factory during working hours. Uh, When he was brought to court, he was fined 20 bucks, and the judge apologized to him for the imposition. God, I hate capitalism sometimes. In December of the same year, inspectors found the inside of Blank's factory littered with debris and piled in heaps. Fabric scraps were kept in non-regulation, flammable wicker baskets. And yet, instead of receiving a fine, he just got a stern warning. So, even though all of these regulations were passed, they still were not enforced with strict regularity. It's a good glimpse at how labor and capital operated during the Progressive Era, a period where we typically think of government coming in to regulate the excesses of rampant capitalism, but only if there was political will to do so. But the garment worker strikes and the uprising of 20,000 and the Triangle Fire did ignite a labor movement. It served as a training and organizing ground for working women like Rose Schneiderman, Clara Lemlich, and Paula Newman. And it served as inspiration for others like Francis Perkins and Robert Wagner. 
Frances Perkins, like I mentioned earlier, went on to become FDR's Secretary of Labor and the first woman to serve as a cabinet secretary. She was one of the principal architects of the New Deal, and she's a prime example of a progressive era reformer who really bridged the early 20th century with the 1930s and brought many of the social and civic reforms that progressive era reformers wanted into the New Deal, i.e. through like the Wagner Act, right? Uh, she was quoted years later saying that the New Deal was, quote, based really upon the experiences that we had in New York State and upon the sacrifices of those who we faithfully remember with affection and respect died in that terrible fire on March 25th, 1911. And people in the labor movement have not forgotten the legacy of those garment workers. Every year on May Day, there is a commemoration at the Ash Building, which is now called the Brown Building, and is functional and owned by NYU. Every year, the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition organizes events to commemorate the fire and bring awareness to the needs of workers today. We've got some book recommendations in our show notes if you'd like to read up on current sweatshop labor and the labor movement in general. Now, since this episode is part of our fashion series, we'd be remiss to not go back to the shirt that started it all, the shirtwaist. What happened to the shirtwaist? Well, in fact, <laughs> by the 1920s, the tightly laced mutton sleeve look was out and a straighter, flatter, more athletic looking figure was in. Young, fashionable women didn't wear corsets anymore. Or at least the body morphing wasp or hourglass shaping kind of the previous generation. One reason the corset fell out of style was on account of World War I. Corsets used metal boning to shape women's bodies into the hourglass figure so popular in the 19th century. But metal was needed for ammunition and other military supplies. So in 1917, the U.S. War Industries Board asked American women to stop buying new corsets. At about the same time, the bra started being mass-produced. Women didn't stop wearing figure-changing clothing, however. The metal bone corset just gave way to other forms of other forms of ridiculous and stupid and body shaping foundations like girdles and, or what we would now call body shapers. <laughs> Thanks, Kardashians. <laughs> Additionally, it seems like the aesthetic clothing movement finally took over and tight lacing gave way to more comfortable, movable styles. And so the shirtwaist fell out of fashion as style changed. Of course, women still wore skirts and blouses, but the language or nomenclature changed too. The term shirtwaist was used until the 1920s. Afterwards, the more common term used was blouse or shirt. And this is one of those fundamental American questions. What does freedom mean? Does freedom mean freedom of the market? Freedom of capital? Of owners to do with their businesses and investments what they will? Or does freedom mean freedom from want? Freedom to live and work and produce in a safe environment? It's really a fundamental question in our republic, and we are honestly still grappling with it to this very day. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, uh, what else? Twitter, Instagram, Instagram, Pinterest, all of the things. Join our Facebook group at Dig History Pod Squad. Mm -hmm, Leave mm -hmm. us a review subscribe and so make sure to check out our show notes at digpodcast.org we've got a bunch of um 
books and some documentaries. There's also some audio you can listen to all regarding this labor movement, garment workers movement, and then the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in general. So all that's listed in our show notes. And before we go, we want to give a little shout out to one of our awesome listeners who left us a a review on Stitcher, actually. Um, This is from The Muffin Con, um, number one, awesome screen name. That's great. But the title is Mind Blowing. I really dig, dig history. It's great to get down into the depths of history and have my mind be taken to the lesser known pockets that the dig folks have mined. I especially enjoy the women's reproductive health series. I couldn't fathom family planning before hormonal birth control and the sheer number of usage were astonishing. It was really mind-blowing to find out how far we have come and why it is important. Aside from that particular series, the rest of the episodes are great as well. I have learned so much, and I really love and appreciate the episodes with non-dominant cultural themes and touching on race and class and gender and the world and all the things. Anywho, yeah, they're great. Listen in and learn a lot. Well, thanks, Muffin Con, for listening and for those... Um, very punny and kind words. <laughs> um, tune in next week for another episode from your favorite historians here at Dig. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. They were worn with a dark skirt and were the were the staple. No, that's not stupid. Illinois. Illinois, please. Illinois? Illinois. Don't be a weirdo. Illinois? Oh, okay. Okay. It just sounded weird for a second. I guess I've never said Illinois out out loud. Um. (laughs) Illinois. Illinois. But also, too bad about their balls. Yeah. (laughs) Exposition. Expedition. Exhibition. Jesus Christ. And we are your hurt. Her, her, her. A dark skirt. Ooh, almost said skirt. 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 Or skirt and girt. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they were named the Mink Brigade, foolishly, but they went out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the Muffin Con? The Muffin Con? The Muffin Con? <laughs> Do you think this is Marissa?